0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake Online. It is 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, and uh, we are on part four, finishing off a series today called God and Gold, a series on empire. So thankful for those of you who have been tuning in for this entire series or sticking with us all six months that we've been doing online services. Uh, it's pretty, pretty crazy. If you've missed uh, any of the talks leading up to this concluding talk, because it's like the end of a story or end of a movie, and you want to go back and watch, you can always go back to eastlaketricecities.com slash talks, or we made it really easy easy during this weird pandemic time and we developed an app that you can download all of those things on there as well. And we wanted to talk about empire because every once in a while we're reminded or we read something or hear something or watch something that reminds us that we currently if you're watching this from America live in some sort of an empire. Uh, and the reason that we know that is because the rest of the world cares about our news, our economy, and our elections more than we care about any other nation's news, economies, or elections. That's just as a reminder of how unique a space we fill in. Now, this series isn't, not, isn't necessarily a critique uh, of specifically Americans' version of empire. We'll leave that to New York Times op-eds or whatever, and it's not probably not what you came to church for, um, but There are some questions to consider with the reality that we do kind of exist in this. Um, And we came up with some questions that kind of help facilitate the direction of our conversation that we've been trying to address for the last few weeks. Question number one is basically, how should one live within empire? Um, How does one kind of, if it is kind of more corporate... Uh, How does it play out in my own personal life? And we said one of the verses to keep in mind, a theme verse, uh, was a verse that uh, shows up in the book of Proverbs, which is basically a curriculum for parents, Jewish parents, when there wasn't any schools to be able to train their kids in kind of age-old wisdom. This is a a really good way to live your life. Keep these things in mind. These things have been passed down from generation to generation on wisdom and doing life. And one of those verses or one of those Proverbs or or, or, uh, axioms or whatever shows up in chapter 1, verse 19. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten. Gain, it takes away the life of those who get it. Don't go after ill-gotten gain. It does something to you. Or, as Eugene Peterson would kind of write about in his interpretation of it in the message version, when you grab all that you can get, when you go after something, and empire is all about sowing reaping where they haven't sown, taking more than they deserve, undue wealth. um, basically, you know, basically we're in a position of power, we're gonna leverage that power to get more for ourselves. When you grab all that you can get, this is what happens: the more you get, the less you. Are. And if you could train your kids to kind of go through life and go, listen, there's going to be a temptation for you to get into debt to get a car faster, like the, or this certain car, or this certain house, or do this, and everybody's going to be going after you to sign up to get into debt. But that's kind of reaching for more than you really have right now, right? You're you're delaying, you're, you're um, making it difficult for your future self to be able to kind of survive and provide for your family and all that kind of stuff. Like if you could just avoid, imagine, imagine if your parent at some point convinced you at a young age. To avoid consumer debt, how your how different your life would be right now, right? I mean, that's like, it's it's a big thing to kind of think about, and that's part of kind of empire. And so, uh, taking that on sort of a corporate level, and we see that taking place. And then if we could be like, okay, well, there's going to be a temptation for me to see how this operates as a nation. I've got to learn to kind of discipline myself in this way, or a better, even a, a secondary question to ask that I think adds on to that is, what does it mean to be Christian? in the middle of empire. Because the first one is like, even if you're not a Christian, you can kind of figure out what that means. And then, but then if you're a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, there's like additional stuff that comes along with that, that, that is uh, following the way of, in the teachings of Jesus. We've said from the very beginning that we want Eastlake to be a community that each and every week comes together to discuss the way of Jesus. What would it look like to live out in 2020 or and beyond or whatever in the way of the ethics that Jesus taught? Like, let's, let's discover what that means for us. So, um, if you don't, if you don't identify as a Christian, it's especially obvious to you in the phrasing of this question—the ironic habitat that the followers of a crucified rebel, by the hands of an oppressive empire of his day, who promoted the well-being of the poor, the disenfranchised, and the illegal aliens, are now the ones with power. How ironic! Um, for us as Christians now, who our hero is somebody who um, was, this, was on the, the, uh, the bad end of empire in this way. And to be fair, this was, you know, true centuries before America and has been part of the wild history of the church, especially Catholic church and how all that thing has rose, risen up even since 400 AD with Constantinople. And just how has power infiltrated church and what does empire look within the church? But that's another series for another time. We'll get there someday. But Uh, All that to say, empire isn't uniquely American. Human communities have been in and out of empire since the beginning of time. People of faith, um, specifically Israel and and sort of like this new Israel, even this New Testament, whatever, have been in and out of empire even within the limited timeline of the biblical text itself. We said one of the earliest books of of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, the second one in, in like the order of your Bible probably, but tip, but basically the starting point of, of the people of Israel finds Israel in a racial minority, as a racial minority, in Egypt. They'd gone there because Joseph transferred there and became, you know, wealthy and, and, a, and a person of influence and in his family eventually because of famine, brought his whole family in. But now they've kind of like fast forwarded a few years and Joseph's long gone. And now all they are is like this racial minority that the Pharaoh has been worried about them kind of growing and, and their birth rates and everything. And uh, and fearful of what you know what jobs they 're going to take, and you know, uh, all, all of the things that come along with that, and so decides that we 're going to do this forced labor aka slavery on this people group for four hundred years. so Exodus begins when all of that stuff has already taken place, that transition has taken place, and they 've been in forced labor sort of mentality now for four hundred years. those are generational. Mindsets. That's where you begin to forget anything about your prehistory and forget what it was like to be free or whatever. Until one day, Yahweh, the God of Israel, hears his people. And we talked about this in, I think, week two of this. Here's the cry or the saak of his people. The sound of anguish, the sound of pain, the thing that comes deep in your heart when you've gone through something terrible. And you're done, like its crying is done. people ask you if they can help and you're, I'm done with that. I'm just like, I'm broken and I'm hurting and I don't even know what to do anymore. And so I just like, I look up at the ceiling and if you're out there, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? That's, that's Sa'ak, that's the cries of his people. And he breaks through the silence as he has this tradition of doing. God continues to hear the cries of the oppressed. God continues to hear the cries of the oppressed. He hatches a plan, and a plan that involves Moses and a bunch of plagues, meant not to inflict pain necessarily, we know the history of the plagues, but to show the superior, superiority. Of Israel's God over and above the gods of Egypt. If you look at it, um, all of the different angles at which they take attack the different gods who said they have power over the Nile, power over the animals, power over fertility, all of these things. And he's, he's doing these plagues to kind of send this message that you really don't know who you're dealing with here. Like, this is different. You're dealing with a God that supersedes all of your other deities that you may think are important. Beware, tread lightly in this area. Exodus records in detail the final blow, what we know as the 10th plague. And essentially, uh, the message goes out to the Israelite community. Uh, Tonight, something's going to happen. We can't exactly tell you what, but you're going to want to kill that land that you've been saving. You're going to want to feast with your family tonight. You're going to need the energy for what's ahead. And one more thing, you're going to need to do something that involves animal blood, uh, and your doorposts, which freaks us all out because we get all of our animal protein in nice white paper packages from Safeway or Yolks or wherever we shop, right? With little to no mess. That's how we like animal protein. That's how we like our meat, right? My mom, uh, I remember growing up, my dad would, would take me hunting. Um, we lived in Quarterland for a while and, and, uh, and, and we'd go out hunting and she would say, um, listen... I don't care what you bring back, I just want it in little white packages. So don't tell me, I don't want any pictures, I don't want to see, how'd you do? You can just tell me, that's fine. But from a visual standpoint, I want little white packages in my freezer, right? Uh, Until the day we hung a dead deer carcass from our playground in the backyard um, to dry it out, because we didn't have anywhere else to go, uh, and that's when we stopped hunting. So there you go. every, so so, here's the deal, here's the story, you're going to do this, it's going to involve blood, which sounds weird to us, but for them it was like everything about how they lived was a little bit more messy. So as odd as it sounds for us, it wouldn't be as odd for them. That's the only reason why I bring that up. But every revolution needs some sort of a spark, right? An icon to capture people's attention. This is true now, just as it was for the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and and beyond, or whatever. Every every sort of movement needs an event that overcomes the despair and the atrophy that cuts through the years of oppression uh, and the mentality that that creates. And whatever it is that that image becomes, uh, that becomes the memory, the defining memory of the good that has just begun. And motivation for why we need to continue the fight and continue this and continue going. So it's what, maybe it's a flag. Maybe it's a, a, a sword. Maybe it's a, a, a V with a circle through it for Vendetta. I don't, it's all kinds of things. People need a catalyst, a symbol, a picture of what freedom will look like. Otherwise, they just might keep quiet and keep making bricks, head down, tolerating the old regime, making more bricks with fewer resources. So then the question becomes, what would that revolutionary image be for our Israel? What kind of spark would generate the kind of interest that they need? What picture would tell them, and for generations to come, that their time for freedom is now here? With that in mind, we'll read through Exodus chapter 12. Here's what it says Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people. Uh, there are. Jump down to verse 7. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. In verse 11, finally, this is how you're to eat it with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste it is the Lord's Supper. You're going to do something. You're going to have a meal. You're going to share together one last time, sort of a feast. These would be things that you, um, you, know, you want to hold off on that. You don't want to eat. You can't eat prime rib every time for dinner. You save that for Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? This is them saying, I know it's weird, but it's right in the middle of, of seemingly nothing, but there's going to be an event that we're going to signify here. So, so make the prime rib, but like get it to go. Because we're, we're moving fast, is basically what's happening here. Something is about to take place, and it's going soon. For Israel, the symbol of revolution is a lamb, which, I'll be honest, isn't as cool as a striped flag, a raised fist, or a very British, keep calm and carry on passivity. Very, very British. Um, to be more specific, though, it's not just a dead lamb, but a slain lamb lamb, one who was killed and whose sacrifice is beneficial for each family, each household, and shared with those around us when the need arose. In this story, the lamb represented a substitute for the firstborn of each Jewish household, and whatever divine retribution is about to fall in Egypt, and apparently imminently soon, those with blood on the doorposts are going to be spared. But why this ritual, and why this emphasis on the firstborn? I mean. Um, I don't know. We have. I'm a firstborn of a family. I, I'd like to think that it means something more than my other three siblings, but in reality, it probably won't. In this culture, though, at this time, the firstborn served as a representative of the family and took care of all of the family matters that the father or uh, patriarch or whatever didn't take care of. The firstborn son of Pharaoh had the same exact rank as Pharaoh himself. His role as heir apparent was a form of national security. We know how this thing plays out. If something happens to Pharaoh, there's no question. As long as the firstborn is alive, there will be no other claims to power as long as he is alive because um, we're fine. Our, our future is secure in this. His life was the sign of the God Ra's ongoing presence with them. So the 10th plague shows up, nine plagues have not convinced the Pharaoh um, that uh, he needs to let his people go. Then Exodus chapter 4, 22 verse 23 says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. He calls the nation of Israel, he, he calls this people group, this racial minority in this empire, Egypt, his firstborn son, signifying how significant this thing is, why I'm so obsessed with getting them free. And as uh, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Again, Israel is God's firstborn. And through Israel, God's intention is to show the world what God is like. That was the point of a chosen people. I'm not going to be down there doing this. You're going to be my hands and feet in this way. God wants to redeem all of humanity through his firstborn son, Israel. In fact, the entire Old Testament is about that it's about their calling it's about their exodus it's about their retraining it's about their faults and their attempts and their they, they develop this kingdom, but then they turn empire and then they're in exile. The whole thing is about what if you had somebody that you'd hired to do your work for you and then and, and then in the you know, throws of employment, right? It's like up and down. Some days are good, some days are bad. And you're like, but you represent me. Like you wear a uniform that says my name on it. With the actions that you take at the job site, when you show up 15 minutes late, when you don't give a rip, when you spill stuff and don't clean it up, that says something about me, right? That's what's happening with this. God's judgment on the firstborn of Egypt is a declaration that the God behind Pharaoh's brutal and oppressive rule are powerless and will be allowed to tyrannize humanity no longer. And so this, in this 10th plague, they put the blood on the doorpost. And you know how the story goes. It says that a deaf angel comes through, kills all the firstborn of any home uh, that doesn't have that on, on, the, on the doorpost, including Pharaoh's son. It's a very dark, it's not a great children's story. All right, I'll tell you that right now. Like if you're reading through that, you might wanna skip that. Get to like Jonah or Noah or something different and it'll be better, all right. But the point of it is that there's a statement being made here and the statement is that Yahweh God is in control and that empire of that time specifically located in Egypt being the superpower of the day empire cannot will not last forever even though for 400 years it feels like in, and after 400 years you just think that this is how it's all going to play out right I mean, this is just how life is. We think that after like six, right now, we think that, man, God, this pandemic's just gonna last forever, isn't it? It's been six months. I mean, that's a long time. I'll, get, I'll give you that. Like, I feel that in my bones. Imagine 400 years being like, this is how this works. At 400 years, is there even a question? Is there even an inkling? Is there any sort of a glimmer of hope? Or is it completely all gone? It's, it's gone. It really is gone. And yet, what's being taught here is that empire cannot, will not last forever. That way of life, when you continue to reach for more than you have earned, it does something to you. And that sort of living, that sort of living for self at the expense of others, it may last you for a while, but it will not last forever. In this case, plagues have brought the, whole, the world's superpower to its knees. But before the journey begins there's a meal, and then they're commanded to never forget their story. Verse uh, 26 of chapter 12 says, and when your children ask you, hey, what does this ceremony mean to you? That's like, that's an odd question, because my kids have never asked, why do we do this? That's what they, that's what they say, right? Why do we, why do we uh, do Christmas, or why do we do this, or anyways, then they tell, then tell them this. Here's your response whenever your kids say, what's the point of all of this? It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. It was this one time after 400 years of silence, he decided to show up in the middle of nowhere where we we weren't even thinking of rescue or even thinking of overthrowing an empire. The empire was clearly in control. And we were sent a message that the way of empire will not, cannot, will not last forever. We celebrate a meal together to say in the end, We know the God who wins, not the empire way of life. A lamb sacrificed for the people becomes the flashpoint for God's revolution. Blood on the doorposts of the houses of Israel. Now, As we've talked about in this series, Israel does indeed forget their story. In fact, it feels like I'm almost working backwards because last week we talked about how um, they forget their story. Solomon comes as a a son of of, uh, David to become the king of Israel. They begin to get get successful in all this. They become then empire themselves. And that's the problem with empire is that as soon as you're, you're rescued from it, it is really, there's like this incessant draw towards doing it yourself. Like you grew up you know, poor and, and whatever. And, and when you come up through that, you think, I'll never, I'll, I want to train my kids never to be like that. And then eventually at some point you find them entitled and you're like, oh man, did I do that? What, what is this? There's this incessant draw towards this. They forgot what it was like to live under empire. And when they begin to have something worth having, they focused on preservation and they succumb to the very thing that they were taught as a child to avoid, which again is when you grab all that you can get, this is what happens. The more you get, the less that you are. They end up in exile, the place you go when you forget, you've forgotten your story. And they find themselves pining for another chance, right? By the, they they hung up their harps by the river in Babylon, wondering if God was still at work, if God would give them another shot. Uh, Another Jerusalem, a new leader, uh, eventually that that thought of another chance would translate into a new Jerusalem, a new experience of of this again, and eventually that would even uh, if that 's going to take place it 's going to take somebody to be able to make that happen some leader some some um, uh, messiah some some person that would you know initiate the change a new uh, son of David, a new Solomon, but, but like better, a new Moses, but like better, a firstborn son that would do the work of the father. About 400 years after their return from exile, a religious nut then who begins uh, to look and sound like an Old Testament prophet is baptizing people uh, by the Jordan River. And when all of a sudden he pauses he's with some people who are his disciples or, you know, these, these religious leaders would come and they would go in the nation of Israel. But this one is especially weird. He felt like a kind of a hangover from uh, an Old Testament thing. He stops what he's doing and he points to an unknown somebody nearby. And he says these words, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He stops what he's doing. He takes the image that has been the symbol of catalyst of change, of revolution, of something, of anti-empire And he associates it with a person, a person relatively unknown in that time. He points to what would be his cousin, Jesus, and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few years later, on the night he'd be betrayed and arrested, Jesus is having a meal with his closest friends and followers. But it's not just any meal. As we know, and as you can tell, the story probably ties together. Israel hadn't completely forgotten because now it's Passover. And they've remembered to do this thing. Even if, it's, even if it is sort of a shell of their stuff, uh, of their original belief system, they still have some things that they do. They still do this feast of tabernacles, this feast of this. this feast. They're, they're into like this ritualistic mode. And Passover meal has begun to kind of feel like a ritual to them. But we do this because this is part of our ethnicity. This is what we're supposed to do as, as Israel. And, and so they're sharing a the meal together. And in the meal, during the meal, he takes the bread. And he says, this is my body, which has been broken for you. And he begins to speak future tense about something happening. But also the real more aggressive thing is taking this bread and this wine and associate it with himself and saying, this is my body. And this is my blood, both of which have been given um, for you. He makes it entirely about himself, which would have been entirely sacrilegious. It'd be the same as me saying on a Sunday morning, we're going to do communion. This is my blood. (laughs) He'd be like, I got to go. You know what I mean? And you should. You should leave. But anyways, he does this and they don't leave. This time he knows that the firstborn will not be spared. The time has come that the lamb is going to be God's own son and no substitute will be given. There is no ram in the thicket. The cup will not be taken away from him. In the first Exodus, the lamb's blood was placed at the doorpost of the house for the salvation of those who live there. In this new Exodus, Jesus' blood is about something bigger, And I know that we don't often sing a lot of songs about Jesus, but a lot of old hymns have that sort of terminology in them. It feels weird for us now, because again, we're so disassociated from blood and all that kind of stuff. And so it's not in there, but um, that symbology shows up. And the reason that it, it shows up in Old Testament hymns is because this is the part that it signifies. It's trying to identify that lamb that was slain, that whole idea of that same God is the same God at work through the person of Jesus or, or, or through the work of Jesus. And then when, when, when that blood saved the nation of Israel at that time, it's like Jesus' blood is like for a bigger group, something a little bit larger. Paul calls him the firstborn of all creation in Colossians 1. His blood covers the entire created order. He's leading all of creation out of Egypt, out of the Egypt, um, not physical Egypt, but out of the Egypt or the empire mindset of violence, sin, and death. And all that was lost at the garden is now being redeemed. And so, when we meet... When we come together on a Sunday, and for us, usually at the end of a series, we celebrate, we're thankful. What's our response to Paul talking about this Jesus in this way? And if we're learning about what he's done and what his death and, and life and resurrection and teachings mean for us, what is the appropriate response for people living in 2020? We, 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 we are grateful, we're thankful, we celebrate. The Greek word for thankful comes from this word, uh eukaryzomai. Eukerizom, uh, which basically this first part just means you, like, or it means good. Um, and then this last part means to grant or to give. So in other words, eucharizomai means a good sort of gift. The same word that we get for the word Eucharist, which maybe if you grew up in a more Catholic church, you know that this, we call it communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever. What are we doing? We're celebrating the good gift, that's what we do with this. We together we celebrate the Eucharist, the good gift of Jesus to the world. We go through the ritual of dipping the bread in the wine, and when we or juice or whatever, and when we eat, we eat it to not forget the story and what His death means to us now. And I, I mean, we don't we don't do that now, right? Because you know, pandemic. We know that, but. This would be traditionally the time in a service where I would say, all right, at this time, our communion servers are going to make their way to the back. They're going to come up to the front. We're going to do this, but we're not doing it at this point. For Paul, and, and, and that has a little side note. This is in my notes, but communion, I don't think is, um, I know this kind of breaks with some church tradition, but uh, not something that the priest blesses and then, then that's good and, and you're good to go. Like our bread means more than the bread that you buy. I buy it at Yolk's on my way to church on Sunday. So it means nothing. You know what I mean? You can buy the exact same bread at home, or if you're watching this from home with your friends or family or whatever, you can take communion in the same way. Like, it doesn't matter in my perception of kind of how this whole theology thing works, okay? The point is the remembering. The point is um, the the reminding ourselves of the good gift of Jesus. That's what we do with with this. Anyways, for Paul— he would say this about the Eucharist or the, the celebrating together. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side. He's talking about the church, and he's writing to them as they're kind of going through the persecution of what it meant to be a part of an early church and Roman whatever. Anyways, um, so he knows, he's recognizing this is difficult. This is not an easy calling to live through. We're pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Why do we receive communion? Why do we receive and celebrate the good gift? Because according to Paul, that something, that good gift comes inside of us and at least symbolically makes us sort of the good gift to the world, not because of anything that we are special, but because we represent Christ into this world. The church then becomes a living Eucharist, which brings us then back to our original questions that we started this whole series with, and this even this talk today with, is how should one live with an empire, and what does it mean to be a Christian in the middle of empire? Here's what it means. A Christian, and if you're not, then you get to pass, you get to figure out your own empire thing, but a Christian is the living Eucharist, the living good gift to the world that is consumed and obsessed with empire. An alternative way, a counter way to do culture. You can do it that way, but we just sincerely believe that empire cannot, will not last forever. And that the Jesus way offers an alternative way. It's allowing us or giving us the opportunity to live in a way that our body is broken and our blood to be poured out for the healing of the world, to push back against empire and its contagious self-preservation habits at whatever cost, and to live selflessly and reconciled to all of humanity. To find ourselves among people who might share only one thing in common, and that because we might come from all different Ba- back backgrounds and political backgrounds and leanings and all this kind of stuff. But the only thing that we have in common is the only thing that truly matters, which is an association and awareness of the following along in the way of Jesus or this idea of being made in the image of God. The one thing that matters is the fact that we are a common humanity, that our identity is found And who made us and not what we can produce in life. And yet we discover again, once again, that the really, the only thing that matters is that the authority that the church has in culture doesn't come from how right our doctrine is, how cool our worship experience is, or how well we've pursued power and lobbying and organized politically as a voting block worth catering to. Those are all power moves. Those are all operations of empire that don't make any sense in this way. God and gold have often been used to build up and to sustain empires, no doubt. Um, That's true of America. Um, That's true of almost every empire that has been around. Empires find ways to leverage uh, religion to make people uh, find a higher sense of allegiance to what they're doing. But we recognize that that's broken. When we come together in community to remember the good gift of Jesus we're once again reminded um, that the invitation to the life that we are called to live has almost nothing to do with self-preservation and hoarding and reaching for more than we deserve at the expense of others. Empire, and the, our motivation is because we live with the conviction that empire cannot, will not last forever. The way we live opposite of empire is a declaration to anybody who will listen to us. That you're dealing with something that's so much bigger and outside of our league here. We're dealing with something that is beyond um, that. Because people will not understand. Why would you not take when you can get? Why not take more if it's available? Um, And we live with the conviction that uh, the truth is that that the God of Israel has taught us that we're dealing with something so much bigger than that. So my admonition to all of us, my calling for myself and for those of you watching uh, online at home or here or whatever um, is this, may we live as an accurate representation of the good gift of the firstborn son of all creation to the entire world. May we live as the living, breathing, life-giving, empire-subverting picture of the new humanity. And finally, may we live with the understanding that Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and imminent return and reign means that there's blood on the doorposts of the entire universe. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is uh, that we would recognize uh, as we go through our life the Picked up habits of empire in, our, in the way that we do things. Oftentimes, a lot of times, we think we're exempt. We don't even see our blind spots in that. I pray that you would make us aware of those small times where we we have fallen into that trap of thinking whether it's entitlement or deserving of things that we have uh, not sown or or whatever, and, and what that then does to us. Every once in a while, we 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 read articles and we see and we go, yeah. If we feel convicted, but may that conviction go beyond just that. May we live with the conviction the empire cannot, will not last forever, and that we are dealing with something that is so much bigger than that. May, us, may as we gather together under normal circumstances and receive communion together, receive this good gift, may we remind ourselves of Paul's words to his church in Colossae that that then lives inside us, that we get to go and be a good gift to the world. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life The occurs to act on it in your name.